morning. Next uh, three weeks, while Jack is out, you have the uh, privilege to hear from the Three Stooges. I won't tell you which one's Curly, though. You'll have to figure that out. We can continue to pray for Jack as he is down in Brazil, along with Kendall and uh, Leah, Greg Meck, and also Kendall brought Michael and Melissa with him. We could pray for them and also the opportunities they're going to have to uh, impact many pastors uh, for the gospel, for the kingdom. So continue to pray for them. And one, one other thing, too, if you remember last week, uh, Jack, remember that pink tie he had on? So, you know, I, I outdid him. I, I went and went for the whole enchilada this morning. I got a whole pink shirt on for you. So, you know, Jack's a bold guy, but, you know, I thought I'd outdo him a little bit. So, anyway, I wanted to talk to start out this morning with uh, testimonies. I love to hear testimonies. You know, Sunday night services, we have uh, baptisms, and one of my favorite parts of that is hearing the testimony of how God has delivered someone from hell and from sin. How they've moved, he's moved in their lives. And over the years, I've talked to many people and come across some pretty amazing testimonies from them. Well, this week, I came across a testimony of Raul Reese. I'm sure many of you heard of him. He is a well-known pastor, Calvary Chapel in Diamond Bar. And growing up, his life, he, as he describes it, was full of violence and anger. And, and that violence had spilled over into his marriage, where he had actually, for several years, been abusing his wife. And after more than four years of that, his wife had finally had enough, and she decided, I'm going to leave this guy. She wanted to to leave him and take the kids with her. Now listen to how Raul Reese describes what he was thinking at that moment. When I realized she was going to leave me, I decided that nobody would ever have her or my kids. The best way to do that was to execute her and my kids and kill myself. As the police would come, I would just shoot it out with them, and that would be the end of everything, and then nobody wins. When I got home, she'd already gone to church. As a matter of fact, it was Easter Sunday, 1972, and I'd already made up my mind to kill her. So I got home, and I saw her packed bags on the side. I walked into the house, went to the closet, got my rifle, and loaded it with 18 rounds. I started walking around the house. I began to destroy my whole house, just knocking everything I went to the TV and I was just standing there. I was so angry and so mad inside. I took the butt of the rifle and I hit the TV. And when I hit it, it came on. And when the TV came on, there was this bald-headed guy talking about Jesus. It was Chuck Smith. And so Raul goes on to describe how he was arguing with Chuck on the television and kept telling him to shut up. But for some reason, he, he wouldn't turn the TV set off. But it was in that hour... That hour where he was planning a horrific crime, that God opened his eyes, that God showed him mercy as he cried to the Lord for repentance and forgiveness. It's an amazing story. And I'm sure that, you know, many people have come to Christ in their living rooms, maybe not under the exact same circumstances. Many have come to know the Lord in a jail cell or in a lonely motel room or in the pew or many different places. Jesus comes to, to people everywhere, whether old or young. Any time, any place. He found me on a street corner in Santa Monica waiting for the Wilshire number two bus to take me to school. I was a drunken, foul-mouthed, impure young man. I had grown up hearing the gospel, even called myself a Christian, but I had refused to submit to the Lord. And it was on that day in October 1986 that God opened my eyes and I realized that I did not have Christ. I realized that if I were to die in that moment, I would be in hell. Think about where Jesus found you. What a moment of joy inexpressible when that burden of sin is lifted and gone. It's no longer there. Amen? And we see many incredible testimonies in the Scripture. They're all over the place, inspiring stories of how God rescued lost sinners. And I want you to turn this morning to Second Chronicles 33, where we will look at what I think is one of the most remarkable displays of God's forgiveness found in Scripture. And I think you'll agree with me as we go through it together. Second Chronicles 33. The man we're to meet today is named King Manasseh. Manasseh had a godly heritage. 
His father was King Hezekiah, who was such a godly king that it was said of him in 2 Kings 18.5 that he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among the kings, more among those who were before him. So Hezekiah was called more godly than any of the kings of Judah before or after. Let's pick up the account of his son Manasseh in verse 1 of 2 Chronicles 33. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had dispossessed before the sons of Israel. And so we see here that Manasseh's reign was over 50, was exactly 55 years, which is the longest of any king in Judah's history. And it's interesting to note he was 12 years old because if you recall, Hezekiah had begged God to preserve his life. And so God answered that prayer, letting him live another 15 years. And it's likely that Manasseh was born during that time. But what kind of king would this son be? What kind of king would Manasseh be? Would he be godly like his father? Well, verse 2 gives us the summary of his life, that he was an evil king. In fact, he was a king as wicked as the pagan nations around him. His sinful legacy is detailed in verses 3 to 10 and is a legacy so steeped in iniquity that some have called Manasseh the most outwardly wicked man in the Bible. And there were many wicked kings in Judah and Israel, but Manasseh and his legacy exceeded them all. And I want to caution you, we're going to look at his life and it's graphic and it's disturbing. But we need to see just how deep a pit Manasseh had dug because we're going to see what God does in response to that. Look at verse 3 with me. So we begin to look at Manasseh's life. He rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down. He also erected altars for the Baals and made Asherim and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name shall be in Jerusalem forever. For he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. So we see right off the bat that Manasseh violated the most important command in Scripture to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And rather than doing that, Manasseh chose to give his allegiance, his loyalty, and his love to false gods. Baal is mentioned here. He's prominent in the Old Testament. His name means master. And according to Canaanite mythology, Baal overpowered the chief god El and took El's wife, Asherah, to be his own wife. Asherah was seen as a as a mother nature of sorts to them, to the Canaanites. She was the Canaanite goddess of fertility. And the worship of Baal and Asherah incorporated and centered upon sexual immorality. Male and female prostitutes were part of the worship services that were conducted before these deities. Manasseh is credited with establishing locations of worship all over the hillsides of Judah. You see the high places that are mentioned there? Those were simply hills upon which he would place these altars. So all over the countryside, people could have this uh, lewd and lascivious acts of worship right out in the open. Manasseh's proclivity for idol worship didn't stop with Baal or Asherah. We see also that he worshipped the host of heaven, adopting the Assyrian astrology. And one such deity, Jeremiah, called the Queen of Heaven, as we see in Jeremiah 7. Manasseh also appeared to give attention to the Egyptian gods. His son Ammon was likely named after the Egyptian sun god of the same name. And as if building altars to these pagan deities all over the hillsides of Judah were not enough, he takes and builds these altars inside the courts of the temple area. There were two courts that were for the temple. One was the great court or the outer court. And that is where people would congregate for fellowship. And as others were giving sacrifices, that is where they would, would hang out together in worship of the Lord. The inner court or the court of the priest was where the altar was located. And that is where the person with the sacrifice would come in and the priest would assist them in offering sacrifice. These two areas around the, the temple building were areas that were dedicated for the worship of God. And yet Manasseh brings these filthy altars and litters the courts with these things. But you know what? Manasseh wasn't content to worship idols in the hill countries. He wasn't content to just uh, even keep those idols and, and altars in the outer and inner courts of the house of the Lord. He actually brought them inside the temple itself. Look at verse 7. 
Then he put the carved image of the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to his son Solomon, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. He brought his wickedness unimaginably into the very temple itself. Altars to Baal were carried in, along with the the Asherah poles, which I didn't mention before. The Asherim that's mentioned, those were poles that were typically made of tree, of wood or stone, and were often phallic symbols. And he brought one of those into the very temple of God to worship, to commit all the immoral acts and debauchery right there before the face of God on the very floor of his house. And proper etiquette doesn't allow me to go into the details of what happened there. It was sick. It was vile. Can you imagine that? Think about, I don't even know how to compare it, but what if Calvary was turned into a place where you could come at any time and go to the different rooms and get drugs, booze, prostitutes, pornography? What if we changed the worship center in here to be a place where you could come and offer worship to Satan? And that's disturbing, isn't it? But Manasseh did that. And far, far worse in the very temple of God. He couldn't even leave the one place in Israel for God to be worshipped. He even took that out too. And what's so terrible and heinous about it as well is verse 4 says that the temple was where God was said to put his name. That is his, his reputation, his honor, his character, even his person. But Manasseh ignored that. Manasseh did not even leave that for God. But he brought his terrible sin into the temple. And it doesn't stop there. If that, if that weren't bad enough, look at verse 6. It says there that Manasseh made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. And he practiced witchcraft, used divination, practiced sorcery, and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. I mean, we're talking about a guy here who would often interact directly with the demonic world. He practiced all kinds of these things, and he loved to be in the company of Satan. Verse 6 says that he made his sons pass through fire, which refers to the horrific worship of the Ammonite god Molech, or the Moabites called him Chemosh. And uh, Molech was, uh, the, the, the service was carried out by, uh, they would go before the statue of Molech, who had the, the uh, head of an ox and the body of a human. The statue was often metallic, with the arms stuck out, and there was, inside the middle of the statue was hollowed out, and they would put a fire pit in there. And they would heat up the fire pit, so the statue would become hot. And then they would take their babies and push them upon, upon the arms of the statue and watch them squirm and writhe and scream out in pain as they dropped into the fire pit below. That is sick. Manasseh didn't follow the normal practice of giving one of his children in that horrific fashion, but it says that he sacrificed his sons, plural, in such an act. He made his sons pass through fire. You know, the sensibilities of our modern day culture would, would look something like that. And we'd say, that is barbaric. That is simply cruel. But, but what's the difference between that and abortion? Only that in abortion, you don't hear the cries of pain by the innocent because they're muzzled inside the womb. Manasseh's murderous ways extended beyond killing his own children, beyond the idol worship that he had littered the land of Israel with. It says in 2 Kings 21.16 that moreover Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end. This is figurative to say that there was not an area in the city of Jerusalem that was not touched by Manasseh's murderous ways, which included not only the child sacrifice, but also the oppression and persecution of the weak, and also likely included the martyrdom of God's prophets that God sent to him that we'll see in a minute. And as if all of this wasn't tragic enough, the impact of Manasseh's sinful legacy is even more tragic because he didn't commit all these sins in the privacy of his own home. No, these were done fully out in the open. And verse 9 says that Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. And notice here it doesn't say that Judah was wicked like the pagan nations around them who did not know God, but that Judah was more wicked than the pagan nations around him. 
And what's tragic about this is that in Deuteronomy 17, the king was called to be the example, to be the, the leader, not only of political uh, and over the army, but also a leader spiritually. He was to set an example. He was to love the Lord God. He was to read his word, to meditate on it. And yet Manasseh had turned that sacred trust on its head. He was the ultimate example of unrighteousness, of wickedness. And to such an extent, he led Israel to become the most wicked nation on the face of the earth. And that is staggering to think about. Because who was it that God had set aside to be a light to the nations? Who was it that was to lead the people of the world to point to the one true living God and say, Worship him. Look what he does for us. He is worthy to be worshipped. But Manasseh led them down the road to where they extinguished the light of the gospel to the world. Israel was now darker than the world around her. She not only um, gave up the opportunity to be a light to the nations, but in fact gave the nations opportunity to blaspheme God. With all this iniquity, God could hardly be silent. Verse 10 says, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. And God showed his grace by sending prophets to call them back. And we don't know who the prophets were. One of them could have been Habakkuk. Uh, Another may have been Isaiah. We don't know for sure. But Manasseh refused to listen, and he most likely martyred them. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus said of, of Manasseh that he barbarously slew all the righteous men that were among the Hebrews. Nor would he spare the prophets, for he every day slew some of them till Jerusalem was overflowing with blood. One of these may have been Isaiah. Jewish tradition says that he was placed inside a tree trunk and sawn in two during the reign of Manasseh. And we don't know that for sure, but that is according to tradition. So as we reach the end of this guy's account, what what is there to say about this guy? He is wicked. He's evil. He's debauched. He's depraved. He's vile. Indeed, he was the most evil among the kings of Judah and Israel, if not the most wicked man in Scripture. And God was so provoked by Manasseh and his wickedness that he said, Enough. I'm done. Jeremiah 15:4, he says, I will make Judah an object of horror among all the kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah the king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. And then God pronounced the 70-year exile for Judah to go to Babylon. They did not become a nation again until about 50 years ago, over 2,500 years. God had dissolved that nation as a nation. What makes Manasseh's sin more heinous is, you know what? He knew what he was doing. If you look at verse 3, he knew the legacy of his father. He knew what his father had done, how his father had rid the land of idol worship, how he had restored temple worship. He brought back the festivals and celebrations, including the Passover that hadn't been celebrated for years. Manasseh had been given a godly legacy, but he did all of these things. He undid them. We need to be careful at this point as we think about Manasseh, because I know it's, it's tempting to think, wow, I am, I am so glad I'm not as bad as that guy. But you need to remember something. You know, Manasseh's deeds came from a depraved heart, a heart that we all share. Jeremiah 17, 9 talks about that. By nature, we are all potentially Manasseh's. Right? Apart from God, we are depraved and unholy. We've committed great atrocities against God because any sin committed against a kind and holy God is an atrocity. Our anger against another is murderous in God's eyes. Our lustful looks... Our adultery to him, our lying words follow in the ways of Satan, the father of lies. Our covetous and greedy hearts tell God we would rather worship something else than God himself. Right? We've made idols of so many things, haven't we? Money, drugs, sex, entertainment, food, fun, alcohol. The list goes on and on and on. Things that we turn to for comfort and security apart from God himself. The Bible is clear that we are all this way. God says that there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. All have turned aside. He says in Isaiah that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Paul said in Ephesians, we all too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. The human race 
displayed its evil clearly when God sent his only son. And what did we do to him? We murdered him. Even our good deeds, if they're done apart from a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible calls them filthy rags, right? Isaiah 64, 6 says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. And the translations are usually kind here, and, uh, but the word here for filthy rag is literally a menstruation garment. What Isaiah is saying here is a graphic statement that even the good things that we do, those good deeds that are done, if it's apart from a relationship with God, they are like used maxi pads. Please forgive my my frankness, but we need to make sure we understand how God views things. When we read an account like Manasseh or anyone else, we must be careful not to separate them as more wicked than me. I mean, that would be like the, a guy on murderer row in the death, uh, being, going to receive the death penalty, him being in the cell and looking to the cell next to him saying, I'm glad I'm not as bad as that guy. He killed 15 people. I only killed four. Friends, apart from God's grace, you are Manasseh. I am Manasseh. We are Manasseh. If the message ended here, <laughs> there'd be no hope. It'd be pretty discouraging. But praise God, it doesn't. For us and for Manasseh, it's not the end of the story. Our sin is great, but God's grace is greater. Our lust for wickedness is deep, but God's love goes deeper. Our rebellion runs high, but Christ's redemption runs higher. With God, there is always hope for all of us. And we see that hope in the Savior's love in verses 11 to 13 in Manasseh's account. Let's read that. Therefore, the Lord brought the commanders of the army, the king of Assyria, against them. And they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. So after over 50 years of wickedness and debauchery it, it's probably it seemed like god had given manasseh over i mean if we had lived at that time and uh, if we were the, the godly remnant that was left looking at this guy and over a period of an entire generation manasseh committed these wicked deeds i'm sure a lot of us would have said well god's given him over to that it's over and when god gives somebody over there's only one way for him to come back and that's if god brings him back well manasseh's story is not just about the depth of wickedness to which a man can sink, but it's about the incredible heights of God's love to which he can reach. One way we see the Savior's love here is in the consequences that God brought to Manasseh. God could have could have easily just taken Manasseh out, and justly so. Right? He could have had him assassinated, had the king of Assyria rather than take him captive, just kill him. Or, you know, Manasseh could have been out walking on the street one day and got hit by a speeding chariot. I mean, right? But God didn't do that. He didn't take him out. Rather than that, he graciously brings circumstances so that he would drive Manasseh to his knees. The text says that the Lord stirred up the the commanders of the Assyrian army to come and take Manasseh captive. We aren't given the reasons as to why that happened. He probably had some active rebellion against uh, the Assyrians. This likely occurred in the last five years of Manasseh's life. He was approaching 60 years old. When this took place and the text here describes a practice that uh, their pictures have been found from uh, this this time period that how the Assyrians would take their prisoners. They would bound a hook around their nose. And I don't know, I guess if if you've had a piercing, that probably wouldn't seem like such a big deal. But man, it sounds painful to me. But they would put a hook in his nose and drag him along with shackles in his hands and on his feet. And in this case, they took Manasseh from Jerusalem to Babylon in that fashion, a journey of over 700 miles. Can you imagine? King Manasseh was brought low. He suffered the humiliation not only of the pain of that experience, but just being humiliated and being drugged along like a wild beast. And that's how the Assyrians wanted people to see that, to show them that, look, if you go against us, we'll treat you like an animal. So where were Manasseh's gods now? Can you imagine him walking along the road? He had a lot to think about. His gods had deserted him. 
They let him down when he needed them the most. His sources of joy and, and happiness and satisfaction were of no help to him in this dark hour in his life. And it's the same today for those without Christ. David said in Psalm 23 of those whom had the Lord as a shepherd, that God would walk with them even if they were in the valley of the shadow of death. When you're in that valley, who is walking with you? Who are you going to rely on? Is it sex, drugs, and rock and roll? Is it achievement or relationships, work, alcohol? What have you got to deliver you? If it's not the Lord Jesus when you need it most, the other thing that you're relying on is going to abandon you. And that's the reality, the harsh reality that Manasseh faced here. He had reached the bottom of his life and he realized the horror was that he was alone. God brought these circumstances upon Manasseh as an act of mercy so that Manasseh would come to that point and see that this is a life. This is where you land. This is where you end up when you live a life against the Lord God Almighty. And God often works similarly, similarly in our lives at times to bring us to Christ, to get our attention. Sometimes he may bring an illness, sometimes a loss of a job or a near-death experience or, or some great tragedy in your life, abandonment, perhaps even the, the loss of a loved one. And sometimes God will bring these things so that we are so low and on our backs that the only direction we can look is up. And that's what God did for Manasseh. His crown was gone. His kingdom was devastated. His pride brought low. His body was tortured. All the pleasures of his sin were now a fading memory as he was being drugged along by the nose, the dirty roads for over 700 miles. But even after over 50 years of sin and debauchery, Manasseh was now ready to listen. He was ready to listen. Verse 12 says that when he was in his distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And this humbling here is not talking about physically. The Assyrians did that for him. Now, what he's talking about here is Manasseh humbled his heart. He humbled himself and brought his heart low. God had finally broken him. And rather than curse God and die, Manasseh chooses to turn and seek God. And in fact, it says here that his humbling was a great humbling to show us that his humility ran deep. He'd now come to realize that the terrible life he had led has got him to this point. Here was a man now that God would work with. Right? David said in Psalm 51, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God himself said in Isaiah 66 too, But to this one I will look, to the one who is humble of heart, humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. God always stands ready to answer the prayer of humility. Manasseh's soul was now burdened to the point that he needed relief. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I remember my son, Daniel, who even at the tender age of six, had come to the realization that that he was on his way to hell because of his sin, even at that age. And he was bothered and plagued by it. And he come to, came to my wife, Tina, in the kitchen one afternoon and was talking to her about it. And after she shared the gospel with him, he had prayed to God for forgiveness and salvation. And then he began to sob. And my wife said, why are you crying? Are you sad? And he said, no, I'm happy. I'm clean. I feel clean. And what's interesting is we never describe that experience of the burden of sin lifted to him. But he felt it. My son found rest for his soul that day, even at six years old. Now, Manasseh's case, how would you have responded to his cry for help? Yeah. <laughs> I, know, uh, I know how I would have responded. After thinking about all he's done and all the murder and the sin and the, 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 the wickedness, I mean, I'm I sure I would have said, sorry, pal, it's game over for you. You had your chance. Yeah, yeah, you're sorry now. 
now that you're feeling the, the consequences of your sin. But, but he just talked to the hand. Right? But praise God, he's not like us. Look at verse 13. When he prayed to him, that is Manasseh, God was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Wait a minute here. Did I read that right? Let me read this again. When he prayed to him, he was moved by his entreaty. God was moved. Think about that. Who are we talking about here? Manasseh. God was moved by his prayer. Take a moment. Let that sink in. The Hebrew here says that he was allowed himself to be entreated. Basically saying, I, I am willing to consider your prayer. Not only was God moved by Manasseh's prayer, but he also listens to his plea. He brings him back to Jerusalem, restores him to the throne. And then at the end of verse 13, we read, Then Manasseh knew that the Lord He is God. What happened to Manasseh there? He now embraced the truth that there is only one true God. Manasseh now worshipped the one true God. He was saved. He was converted. Manasseh was forgiven. God was now his God. Hold on a second. Wait a minute, God. I don't get this. How could you forgive this man? Was he not the man who spurned you to go and serve other gods, to bring those gods in the very temple before your very face, commit terrible and lewd acts right in front of you? Didn't he bring the rest of Israel to do that and lead the nation to terrible sin resulting in judgment? Didn't he shed innocent blood? He burnt babies for goodness sake. He killed prophets. He martyred saints. Didn't he lead an entire nation to do this? And this went on for 50 years. 50 years how could you be moved by his prayer how could you even think to forgive this man how brothers and sisters what's the answer to that it's all over the bible the lord is gracious and merciful slow to anger and great in loving kindness you remember jonah right remember that guy he was given a commission to go preach to the ninevites And he didn't want to, right? He was a racist. He hated those guys. He didn't want to see them preach to. And why was that? Why was Jonah refusing to go to the Ninevites? Because it says there, God, I knew that you were a gracious and forgiving God. I knew what you would do. You'd forgive them. Drove him nuts. But see, that's what God is like. In Ephesians, we read, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ in order to show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us. John three sixteen. For God so finish it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it'd be easy to think, well, Manasseh didn't deserve to be saved. Well, folks, neither do you or I. And that's the whole point of this account. That's the whole point of this account. It is not about you and me. It is not about how wicked we are. It is about Jesus Christ and how righteous and beautiful and compassionate and loving and forgiving and merciful he is. John Newton, who wrote the beloved hymn that we sang a few minutes ago, Amazing Grace, he lived a life of crudeness, of debauchery. Uh, The inhuman slave trading was practiced, was part of what he did as a lifestyle. And in reflecting back on his life as he neared toward the end of his days, John Newton said this, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Boy, if anything sticks out in Manasseh's story is that God is a great Savior, doesn't it? Amen? Spurgeon said, Oh, I do not wonder at Manasseh's sin, Half so much as I wonder at God's mercy. 
Manasseh's life puts the majestic forgiveness of God and his great love on full display for all the world to see. His mercy shines here like a radiant sun, too bright even to look at. God's forgiveness is the same forgiveness that he gave to Manasseh. It's the same that he extends to you and me, to any who would truly repent, to confess their sins, to cry out for God's mercy. If you come to the Lord in genuine repentance, willing to turn your back on your rebellion and all your gods to follow and place your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, God will forgive you. If you humble yourself before him, he will listen to you. He will be moved by your prayer. God will allow himself to be entreated by you. The Bible says, whoever, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No matter what you've done, no matter what you have done, God will allow himself to be entreated by you. Manasseh shows us that God's mercy extends to even the worst of sinners. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But, and I, I love buts in the Bible, but you were washed. But you were sanctified, but you were justified. Those same people in that list that he just gave, which Manasseh covered at least probably all the sins in that list. Even Manasseh was washed, sanctified and justified. There's no greater picture of God's forgiving love for us than on the cross. Because remember, when Jesus suffered the most wicked act in human history, the murder of God's son, Jesus himself What was one of the things that he said while he was hanging there? Curse these people. Just wait till I get down from here. (laughs) No, what did he say? Father, forgive them. That is God's heart. His death reached into the past to remove the sin of the repentant Manasseh. His death reaches forward to us today to remove the sin of any who would repent and believe in Christ. And that's why Jesus came. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Praise God. That's you and me. And don't let the devil or anyone else tell you that you are too wicked to be forgiven. I mean, I could hear Satan whispering in Manasseh's ear, look at all you've done. You've brought gross immorality into this land. You brought it into God's house. You murdered your own children. You murdered godly, innocent people. You led God's chosen people to be more wicked than anyone else on the earth. You are the worst sinner in history, Manasseh. You don't deserve God's kindness. You are wicked. You're worthless. You're without hope. Don't bother praying to God. He won't listen to you. Perhaps some of you hear the same voice. Perhaps some of you hear that you are too great a sinner. You've done too much evil. There's no hope for you. But in that moment, turn to Satan and say, yeah, you're right. I am a great sinner. But Christ is a great savior. Yeah, I deserve hell. But Jesus offers heaven. And no, I'm not without hope because Jesus is not without mercy. I want to throw out a word of caution here. Um, No one should dare presume that uh, he or she can live the life that they want and rebellion against God and then the last moment turn to Christ and be saved. You got to remember something here. God did give Manasseh a long, long time. He gave him over 50 years to repent. But if you keep reading, his son Ammon, who was almost as wicked as his dad, had only two years. And then God took him out and he didn't repent. We don't know how much time that we have. Manasseh is an example of the extent, the amazing extent of God's patience and mercy, but his is not the norm. We need to remember what the writer of Hebrews said. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Our Savior's love is great, but don't presume upon it. And before moving on to the last point, I am compelled to remind you an important implication of God's forgiveness. We have seen 
the amazing depths of God's mercy and compassion and his forgiveness. And we need to remember something. Ephesians 4.32 says that we are to be kind to one another. As believers, we are to be tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. We are to forgive just as Christ has forgiven us. Paul repeats this in Colossians 3.13. He says, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. But Tim, Tim, you don't understand my situation. You have not met my boss. He's unbearable. He is a micromanager, as if this is a curse word or something. He's humiliated me. You don't understand my husband. He doesn't love or cherish me. My husband's been unfaithful to me. My wife's committed adultery against me. My father neglected or abused me. My children have rebelled against me. They've embarrassed me in front of everybody. Or one of my closest friends slandered me behind my back. Yeah, these things happen. I know you've been sinned against. Some of you have been seriously sinned against. But so has God. And he's been sinned against far, far, far more than you have suffered. Yeah, it hurts. It does hurt. And it is hard to forgive. But look at Christ's example. You know, if he can forgive Manasseh, if he can forgive you, then you can forgive others. Forgive just as Christ has forgiven you. And we see in Manasseh what that means. That's a pretty deep forgiveness. So far, we've seen the sinner's legacy in verses 1 through 10, and we've seen the Savior's love in verses 11 through 13. Let's look briefly at the saved life in verses 14 and following. Here, Manasseh shows us the response of one who has truly been forgiven, one who's been converted. Because when God forgives, he not only washes clean, he transforms you. Look at verse 15 with me verse 14 talks about manasseh coming back and taking over his kingly duties again and fortifying the city and then in verse 15 it says he also removed the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the lord as well as all the altars which he had built on the mountain of the house of the lord and in jerusalem and he threw them outside the city he set up an altar the altar of the lord and sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it and he ordered judah to serve the lord god of israel Manasseh is different now. He has changed. And he shows here three evidences of a saved life. The first evidence that he demonstrates is that the saved person thoroughly flees sin. Look at verse 15. It tells us that he removed the foreign gods and idols and altars from the temple, the temple mount, and all Jerusalem. And he didn't just kick them over. He took them and he threw them outside the city on the refuse heap. And that may not sound like much to you, but you need to... Put yourself in Manasseh's sandals here for a minute, okay? He's been delivered from his distress. He's on his way back to Jerusalem. The throne's been restored to him. All of his concerns have been lifted. And he's going back to the place where all that sin was committed. Think about the temptation he would face there, right? He'd show up and all his uh, worshiping drinking buddies would come around. Hey, dude, good to have you back, man. We got a party going on, right? That was all still there. Israel didn't change. Manasseh did, but all the temptation and wickedness was still there. But what does Manasseh do? He literally throws it out of his life. The saved person doesn't keep the the accoutrements or the trappings of the sin around them. They literally remove those things from their life so they would not be tempted to go back to what God saved them from. Manasseh did that. He shows the sign of true repentance by seeking to sin no more. And yeah, we still struggle. But the, the truly saved person does whatever it takes to remove the idols and throw them out into the refuse heap. But his repentance didn't stop there. The second evidence of a saved life is seen in verse 16. A saved person not only thoroughly flees sin, but also joyously pursues God. Manasseh shows this in verse 16 by rebuilding the altar that he had torn down. That altar that was in the inner courts, the court of the priests. Manasseh rebuilt that, got rid of all the filthy altars that were there. And then he began to give peace and thank offerings to the Lord upon that altar. A peace offering was uh, 
to celebrate communion with God. It was a, a celebration of the blessing of peace with God that you experience when you're forgiven. It was usually the sacrifice of, of an animal that was offered, and then you would eat that together with others as a sign, an outward sign of fellowship that you share with God and his people. A thank offering was usually a, a form of peace offering and also included cakes or bread that you would give to the priest as a demonstration of, of gratefulness to God. And, and often when thank offerings were presented, it was also included uh, praise and, and joyous thanksgiving that was given to the Lord. Do you see the picture here of, of Manasseh? Rather than go hang out with the old pagan crowd, he would prefer to be with God's people and to worship God and give him joyful and grateful adoration. In the same way, one who's truly saved is not going to regret his or her old life. The saved person who's been forgiven will look at joy at the journey ahead with the Lord. I don't have to do that anymore. I'm with God now. I can worship him. The saved person doesn't slide over to that pit of sin that they were in and linger there. Oh, boy, I wish I could go back there. Right? We don't do that. A saved person clutches and clings to the one who pulled him out of that pit. Just like Hezekiah, it says of him, he clung to the Lord all of his days. Of all the people on the earth, those who have been forgiven should be the most joyful and thankful. Amen. Paul said in Ephesians 5.20 that believers are to always be giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. If you're struggling right now with a lack of joy or a lack of desire to worship him, you need to reflect on how much you've been forgiven. You need to think about that. He who's been forgiven much will love much. Remember Paul when he was taken prisoner, sitting in the cell there? What was he doing? He was singing praises to God. That is the mark of a saved life. The third and final evidence of the saved person is found at the end of verse 16 where it says, Manasseh ordered Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. When he comes back to Jerusalem, he doesn't seclude himself somewhere away. He doesn't hide the forgiveness that he's found in his pocket. No, he has become an evangelist. He wants everybody to experience the forgiveness he's experienced. He wants everybody to worship the Lord. He's a soul winner now. The saved person not only flees sin, not only joyously pursues God, but the saved person shares the gospel. The saved person wants to see others experience the same thing that they have. If God has forgiven you, if he's removed the burden of your sin, then you need to tell others about that. Right? Every soul needs rest. Some don't realize it until it's too late. Let them know. Manasseh told his people how they could find rest. So what does Manasseh show us about the saved person and how they respond to their salvation? They flee sin. They pursue God. They share the gospel. And what's interesting, too, if you think about Manasseh, here's a guy in his 60s. His whole life was led in debauchery and sin. Everybody in the nation knew about it. Right? He was the king, and he led them in all these terrible, wicked, vile things. They all knew his reputation, but Manasseh didn't let that stop him from sharing the truth of the one true God. He went back there, and he told them, Yeah, that was me, but I'm different now. Worship God now. Worship the one that I found. This is the fruit of true repentance. Manasseh didn't simply change his mind like Jack was talking about last week. His whole life changed. Complete change. If God has saved you, you will be different. You will be changed. You will turn your back on your old life. You will show the fruit of true repentance in your new life. And my desire this morning in sharing the amazing story of Manasseh's conversion with you was for you to gaze upon the wonder and the amazement of the forgiveness of God. His forgiveness is like a large glistening diamond or breathtaking sunset to be marveled at god's to be worshiped for it if you're a believer ponder your own testimony remember how much christ has forgiven you remember the sin that you were caught into not to lament over it but so that you could meditate deeply on what you've been cleansed of think upon the hell that you were living in consider the that god has saved you and how he saved you from the path of destruction that you were on 
you, like everyone else, including myself, we all had that one-way ticket to hell that we carry unless we repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I try often to picture myself on that Santa Monica street corner and remember that day so that I never forget. I don't ever want to forget that day and what God saved me from. Praise God for His mercy. The more you dwell on what Christ has done for you, the more you will be motivated to live for Him. Are you struggling right now in a a deep and serious sin? Then you need to dwell on Christ's forgiveness. Are you having trouble setting time aside for the Lord? Then dwell on Christ's forgiveness. Are you agonizing over bitterness against somebody? Maybe somebody who sinned gravely against you. Then you need to dwell on Christ's forgiveness. Don't stay there. One author said, Bitterness is the poison we drink, hoping others will die. A lot of wisdom there. To get over that, you need to dwell on Christ's forgiveness. Think about Manasseh. Are you discouraged or depressed? Dwell on Christ's forgiveness. Listen to the following passages as I close. Close your eyes if you wish. I just want you to bask in the grace and mercy of God reflected in these texts. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? God does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, God, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Thomas Watson adds to this. Sin shall not be cast in like a cork which rises up again, but like lead which sinks to the bottom. Let's pray. Lord God, we stand amazed at your forgiveness. We stand amazed that you would even even consider and listen to Manasseh's prayer, let alone be moved by it. Lord, we thank you that you even would consider our prayer and forgive us. Lord, if there are any here who have not experienced your forgiveness, who have not bent the knee to the Lord Jesus and sought his forgiveness that he offers through his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. If there are any here, Lord, who uh, do not have rest in their souls and they know it, God, may you, Lord, bring them to yourself. May you open the eyes of their heart to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, for us who have been saved, who have experienced that rest in our soul, we, we thank you. We thank you. Hallelujah, God, we thank you. Amen.